I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Recently named one of Time's 100 Most Influential People of 2019, this woman is best known for her groundbreaking work in the Golden State Killer case. What people don't know, however, is that she also played an integral role in solving a 30-year-old cold case. This is episode 26, The Barbara Ray Venter Story. Hi, Megan. Hi, Amy. How are you? <laughs> Excellent. Good to see you. Always. This is my first case in which I'm not covering an offender or a victim. I know. I was pretty excited about yeah. it. The Kathleen Zellner case, Megan Wright, is the only one that we've covered so far that was a woman who works in the system. Yes. I'm trying yeah, to think okay. about that. <laughs> yes, I'm pretty sure. I would love to hear from the listeners if they enjoy these type of cases, because we can do more of them, because there is no shortage of amazing women who are working in the system or whose work has impacted the criminal justice field in some way. I agree. I have a list right now, and I have about three or four other women that I intend to cover at some point. I have to say it took me a really long time to pick because I have a list as well, and there's a lot of good ones. However, I did land on Barbara Ray Venter, and I think you will understand why. She is incredible. Can't wait to hear this. So as always, I want to start off by talking a little bit about Barbara's background and what led her to her amazing career as a genetic genealogist who, of course, helps solve cold cases, which is why we're talking about her here. Okay. Barbara was born in New Zealand in 1948, and around the age of 20, she moved to the U.S., and she was at the University of California, and she studied psychology and biochemistry. Mm. Very smart lady. And she got her PhD there as well. Lovely. 
Clearly, she is motivated. She is smart. She spent a few years in academia as a professor at the University of Texas. Then she enrolled in law school. She went to law school, and then somewhere around the mid-'80s, she began working as a patent lawyer. Mm, Okay. She was working in the biotech space. She also taught at Stanford for a number of years, where she conducted cancer research. Wow. So we could actually stop here and say, wow, what a career. But (laughs) (laughs) but this is nothing compared to what she would become. Okay. So somewhere around 2012, she developed an interest in finding relatives. Mm. You see how a lot of people are interested in Ancestry.com and, you know, just... It was actually just a hobby for her, nothing more than a hobby. Do you remember back in the day when you made your family tree projects? Yes, yes. She actually joined the DNA family tree website. Got it. And she came across a distant cousin who she started talking to, and her distant cousin expressed some interest in finding his birth parents. She thought it would be really fun to help him, so she found a website called dnaadoption.org, and she actually enrolled in a class on how to use DNA matches, develop family trees, and use public records to find one's biological parents. I love that because I love people who are as interested in like learning and doing mm-hmm. as, as I am. So that's yes. very cool. So you know, not only did she want to help him, she was going to get educated to do so. I know. After she completed the course, she began teaching it. Oh, <laughs> yes. So she became really excited about what she considered this new hobby. But little did she know there was a growing field called genetic genealogy. In addition to working on her own family tree, she began working as a volunteer as a search angel. Have you ever heard that before? Oh, I have. What do they do? So they help adoptees find their birth families. I did know that. Isn't okay. That sweet? That's so cool. Yeah. So she was working as I already a, love her. I know. So she was working as a volunteer helping people find their birth parents and again doing this as a hobby because she was a successful patent lawyer at this time. Wow. Soon after she began doing this, she started getting approached by law enforcement. Oh, of course, because they want to be able to track DNA and they want to be able to track, you know, family Mm -hmm. uh, criminal history. They're they're looking to locate offenders, essentially, using genealogy and using the family tree. And as you know, Megan, it's not possible for law enforcement to search a genealogy site like 23andMe without a court order. I did know that, yes. right. And well, I know this is, we'll talk about this later. Things have say, changed this, a bit. This issue is going to come into play. Oh, yeah. We have a lot of talk on that. Genealogists who solve adoption cases knew that there was this workaround. They could upload crime scene evidence to something called GEDmatch. So GEDmatch is an online service. And what it does is it compares DNA data files across different testing companies. Ancestry.com, 23andMe, those are all independent sites. Right. GEDmatch is... A site where if you have uploaded to any one of those, you can voluntarily upload to that site and it could connect you to people that use these other sites. That makes perfect sense. So it's almost like a... It, w- based on what you said, it's almost like it's almost like TripAdvisor or like yes. Kayak yes. where they're literally giving you a central, data, a central database or a place to look but comparing all the different exactly. sites. And they have, a, or at the time, they had a looser customer service agreement where they were sharing information with law enforcement and lots more on this later. Okay. Because, you know, some people feel that helping law enforcement navigate GEDmatch really is exploiting a loophole and violating users' trust, but others think it's okay and to just kind of proceed quietly so that you don't drive other people off the site. And as I said, we'll dive very deep into that. Oh, yeah. So her first criminal case involvement, it was in 2015, And she assisted a detective who was trying to figure out the identity of a woman named Lisa who had been kidnapped as a baby. It took more than 20,000 hours and the assistance of over 100 volunteers. But ultimately, using Barbara's techniques, they found and connected Lisa with her grandfather, who was the closest living relative who was interested in a connection. Okay. 
So Lisa finally knew her origins, but the story of Lisa was just beginning. Oh my goodness. In fact, it's very hard to believe what followed after this. So it turns out that Lisa's birth name was actually Dawn, okay? So as a child, Dawn lived in an RV park in California with who people were led to believe was her father, a handyman who went by the name of Gordon Jensen. Stop me if you've heard this. As (sighs) I get into it, you're going to. I think I maybe. Go ahead. There was an older couple who also lived in the RV park and they started caring for Lisa because they were concerned about her well-being. Things just didn't seem right. They were so concerned that they tried helping their own daughter adopt this little girl. So at the time, she was only four or five years old. Okay. And this was okay with her, quote unquote, father, Gordon Jensen. So they brought Lisa to their own daughter in Southern California. Very quickly, they called the police because Lisa was saying things that seemed to indicate that she had been abused. Oh, gosh. Okay. Yes. Soon after, they also discovered that Gordon Jensen had fled the RV park. So in other words, this couple were taking Lisa on a trip. And the second they took her, he fled. I think he thought people might be on to him. Police realized that Gordon Jensen was a false identity and fingerprint records from previous arrests matched him to Curtis Kimball. Oh, I think I know. You know where this is going? Yes, I do. Keep going. Keep going. So he was captured and charged with child abandonment as Curtis Kimball in March 1989. Two months later, he pled guilty to child abandonment and received three years in prison. He only served two years and he was paroled in October of 1990. He disappears again, but he resurfaces in California as Larry Vanner in the late 90s. Oh, gosh. Okay. okay so you with me here? There's I'm three aliases. So got far. it. Got it. Okay. So he marries and later murders Yu Sun Jun. So in 2002, Yu Sun Jun was found buried in cat litter at their home in California. I'm sorry. Uh, you said buried in cat litter? Yes. In their home. So when she disappeared, okay. in, so she disappeared in 2002. Okay. So they were married for, a, you know, they were married for a couple of years. She disappeared. Police questioned the man who said his name was Larry Vanner. But okay. once they took his fingerprints, he was a match for Curtis Kimball. He was arrested and he pled no contest okay. to the murder and dismemberment of Yusun Jun. All right. I remember she was dismembered. That was going to be yes. my next question. Yes. I just do not recall this uh, fact about the cat litter, but okay, go yes. ahead. So he ends up being sentenced 15 years to life for this murder. Big range, 15 years to life. Whenever they do these, I'm like, wow, that could be, you know, as little as 10 years or the rest of your life. That's a very wide range. Too wide for me. But okay, go ahead. I agree. In 2003, California authorities now knew that Kimball, Vanner, and Jensen were all aliases for the same man. But it would be another decade before they found out his real name. What? His real name... Terrence, known as Terry Rasmussen. Oh, yes. Also known as the Chameleon Killer. Okay, got it. I knew that you were going to know this. Yes. One of my favorite podcasts, Bear Brook. Bear Brook. Yep. So how does this all come together now? Because remember, we're talking about Lisa here. Yes. Okay. So let's. So how did this all come back to the identification of Lisa? It led authorities to link her kidnapper to a series of murders in New Hampshire known as the Bear Brook Murders. So the Bear Brook Murders, for those of you who aren't aware, it was an adult female and a female child were found in a barrel in Bear Brook State Park in Allenstown, New Hampshire. Years later, two adults additional victims were found in barrels again, and they contained two female children. All victims were found to have died of blunt force trauma to their heads sometime around 1977 and 1981. It took decades to figure out their identities, and it turned out that three of the four were biologically related. I remember this. Yeah. Like, the, like the revelation yeah. of that was like shocking. Shocking. So it was mother and daughter, unfortunately, in the first barrel, and then one additional daughter. Yes. The fourth victim was never ID'd. 
So now we have another alias. While known as Bob Evans. Too many names. So Terry Rasmussen dated Lisa's mom, Denise Bowden. Lisa and her mom, Denise, disappeared from Manchester, New Hampshire in 1981. This puts him in New Hampshire in the early to mid-80s. And authorities believe that he killed Denise somewhere. Her body has never been found. And then he left with Lisa. Got it. Denise and Lisa were not reported missing at the time because the family believed that she left town because she was having some financial issues and she was dating this guy who went by the name of Bob Evans. So they didn't even know that they were really missing. In 2016, however, once the daughter, Lisa, once she resurfaces alive and well, living in California, and then there was publicity about the murders and Bowdoin's disappearance, now they start thinking, oh, something sinister must have happened. They contacted authorities. So this whole thing is coming together. In 2010, Terry Rasmussen died in prison. And after his death, they used DNA obtained from his autopsy. And they were able to establish that he was the father of that fourth victim that was found in the barrel. Oh, my gosh. I did not remember that. So Barbara Ray Venter, all because she was helping this woman find her biological family, that started this domino effect and got us all the way here. All four victims were able to be identified now. Well, I'm sorry, they weren't able to be identified because the fourth victim, we still don't know who this little girl was. We just know that biologically, she is the daughter of Terry Rasmussen. So he killed his his daughter. He did. Authorities say it's possible that there's many more victims of his that they just haven't been able to link yet. That's kind of interesting. He wasn't a, when I teach it, he wasn't a specific, uh, sites, not site specific or place specific. Also, not a local. I, it's funny you bring that up because I was going to say, since you teach on serial killers, I want to know your thought on this because I think what distinguishes him from most serial killers is he targeted people with whom he had a relationship with. Absolutely <laughs> right? distinguishes him. From what I understand, most serial killers actually have very strong family bonds and they focus on complete strangers. Is that correct? Most serial killers will, uh, they don't, I mean, some have strong bonds, Mm -hmm. some do not, but almost always their victims are strangers or strangers to them. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the reasons too is because they don't want to get caught. Yeah. And, you know, they're picking out like vulnerable targets. But yeah, that makes him, that really makes him unique. Almost all of his victims had some sort of familial or relationship connection. Yeah, that's unique. That was a big case for Barbara, but that was nothing compared to what is to come. Wow. Barbara's next case. I already love her. (laughs) In 2017, Paul Holes. Oh. You know where I'm going here, right? I do. I do. We've we've had the opportunity to meet Paul Holes at CrimeCon, and he is... He's a lovely person. He did, yes. He's done some amazing things in the field. He's cool. So Paul Holes learned about Barbara's work on the case, and he sought her out. Because what case was he working on for decades? The Golden State Killer. Yes. So after a review of his previous cases, she says, yeah, you know what? I think I'll work with him. But only later was she told that he actually needed help on what turns out to be the Golden State Killer case. (laughs) So she doesn't know what she's getting herself into. Absolutely not. So why was she needed in this case? Well, they had unknown DNA and they wanted to use this method called target testing. It really just relies on analyzing data from individuals who consensually agree to do a DNA test and upload their DNA to these sites and then match his DNA to see if we could find, well, really make a family tree and find some distant relatives. Right. So they needed to find someone who could compare two autosomal DNA profiles 
and really understand the overlapping fragments and what those overlapping fragments are hinting at. So you have to know which branch of a tree to focus on. Okay. And to, it's almost like putting together a puzzle. Like just because there's matches, there's certain... Got you know, it. I understand. The, the complexities so of DNA here are so interesting. And I'm like teaching this. I'm going to start yep. teaching in my forensics class and I'm reading it going, God, I really... I need to up my game on this too. It's so interesting because somebody who doesn't have experience in genetic genealogy, having this information is really useless. A crucial step involves following cousins back until a common ancestor is identified. Okay. So eventually they begin making progress and Barbara is able to develop a rough outline of some family trees, which would eventually be merged with other trees. So the way I understand it is there were dozens of trees in which this unknown DNA sample overlapped with. So then she helped guide the team on how to fill out different branches using birth records, newspaper clippings, social media profiles, and family tree data. So it's really an, an investigative, you know, the family tree is one part of it. But then to find the missing pieces, you're looking up obituaries and all this other information. I mean, it's detective work, but it it's is. like detective work to fill in the family yes, tree, which so is really neat. I know. So after several months and hundreds of volunteers, a handful of men start emerging as candidates for further investigation because of both their ages and their histories in California. Okay. So once you get the overlapping DNA, then you start narrowing it down by other things that the police knew. So now they're starting to use old school detective work to narrow the suspects down. There were some men that emerged as a highly likely suspect, and a lot of those men voluntarily gave up their DNA. So yeah. they were very easily able to take the DNA sample from these crime scenes. We're talking 30 years ago and compare it with these men and rule them out. Is it that they gave their DNA 30 years ago because they didn't think anything of it? No, or they, they gave just their gave, DNA today. They gave their yes. DNA today. Okay. Yep. A lot of these men, of course, were not matches, but one of them was closely related to this unknown DNA of the Golden State Killer. Oh, my goodness. They also started using, have you ever heard of an eye, there was like an eye color prediction tool that you could use on GEDmatch that can predict based on DNA profiles what color eyes an individual would have. This sounds familiar. It sounds so like something James told me about, to yeah. be honest, because, you know, he, yeah. They also use information from another site that created a health risk analysis suggesting that the suspect would bald prematurely. Oh. So now they're working with a suspect that they know has blue eyes and likely balding. So again, everything they're getting is just narrowing it down. I didn't realize that. That's really cool. So because of this information, they're looking at one man, a man named Joseph James D'Angelo. So D'Angelo had blue eyes. A DMV photo that they were able to get as public records showed that he had a receding hairline. So they're thinking, okay, this is interesting. From there, they did traditional detective work. You know what they did? Oh, gosh, I don't even want to. <laughs> Can I just tell you? It's so exciting. Yeah, just, okay. I was going to say surveillance, but that doesn't <laughs> sound yes, right. Yes, no, you're right. Oh. So they started doing heavy surveillance on him because what did they want to get? Oh, they want to get his DNA. They, they want to get see, a DNA sample. They want to see if he's going to throw out a cup yes. or a cigarette bud or anything that will give them a sample. Yes, okay. Yes, so they want to be able to confirm a match. So they follow him around long enough to get a tissue. Yes. And they compare the DNA. And guess what? It's a match. It's a 100% match. Match. So at this point, I think they narrowed it down to about six people. But wow. they start, so they start like honing in, I guess, on these six, but they, they, they get were, this tissue and it's just a slam dunk. They were doing the same things though, right? Surveilling the other six, yes. trying to get the yeah, DNA matches. I believe right. so. But okay. I think that because of the blue eyes and the receding hairline, he was they had these other people runner. in the mix because, of course, I guess there could be maybe someone shaves or who knows? There could have been some other reasons, but it was wow. so interesting. Joseph James D'Angelo was living with his daughter and his granddaughter. Now in his mid-70s, 
they arrest him. And Megan, he just recently pled guilty. You saw this. It was all over the papers. June 2020. I did see this. We're talking a couple of months ago. Remember, he's wearing the face shield because of COVID? It was, which made it even creepier. And his killing spree. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I mean, he was a police officer. He, goodness, that's right. He was, but he... So he was also a serial rapist and a serial killer. What over he from was, the seventies to the nineties, or so I, he he was interesting because he would have these sleepy periods, which we often see. He he started out just raping. If you recall, I, he was yeah. the East Area rapist, right? Okay, the original Night Stalker. He didn't start killing until I think some decades later. He moved down south. And that's when the killing started. So his rapes happened closer to, I believe, Sacramento. Okay. And then he went down south and started, that's when his killing spree began. But he had children, a wife, you know. That's often why they have sleepy periods, by the way. People go like, why do they go, you know, it's often a time where they've like, they've just married, right? So they're, they're, they're more bound or they have more social bonds and they don't have as much freedom or they just have a child. So, and, and, and and then they say like, you know, I wanted to stop because, you know, I felt this, um, you know, I wanted to be connected. I wanted to give it up. But then there's a draw that most of them feel. And if I remember correctly, they did see a lag after each child. He ended up having three girls, which is. So ironic, considering he was so brutal against women. He ends up pleading guilty to 13 counts of first-degree murder, and he also admitted to more than 60 uncharged offenses, including brutal rapes that date all the way back to the 70s. He would plead guilty to 13 counts of first-degree murder. And again, he admitted to the brutal rapes and the burglaries, but because of the statute of limitations, unfortunately, those victims are not going to get justice as far as the legal system goes. That's unfortunate. I, I, the statute of limitations is one of those other things I go back and forth with all the I time. Know, I you know. know it, you know, if you are able to identify someone, what should it matter what I the know. time frame is? It's a, it's a whole other episode, Megan. I know. So going back to Barbara... After this, she was quoted as saying, I think the really big thing is that in almost all of the cases, at least those that I have worked on, the person that we end up identifying was never on anybody's radar. They were somebody that without any investigative genetic genealogy, they would have completely gotten away with it. And that is so clear in this case. I think that's crystal clear in this case, and I've heard it in other cases. Oh, I'm going to go over the other cases, Uh, Megan. Okay, okay. Don't you worry. All right, all right. I know, there's so much. This might be a two-parter. Nah, Eh. we can get it done in one. (laughs) Get it done. (laughs) (laughs) Since he was now in his mid-70s, not surprisingly, he he just about aged out. He hadn't killed anyone for decades. So as Barbara was saying, he could have very easily gotten away with this had it not been for genetic genealogy. He probably thought he would. Probably thought he was way past getting caught. Yeah, I'd say so. This case really brought the use of investigative genetic genealogy into the spotlight. It wasn't the first. Some people incorrectly say that the Golden State Killer case was the first to use genetic genealogy. It was the first high profile case to use. Right. But it did highlight the power that the tool can have in cracking cases that have been cold for decades. In the immediate aftermath of the arrest, Barbara chose not to publicly identify because she was fearful of her personal safety. Yeah, I'll bet. Not surprising. And she probably didn't want the whole world's spotlight, like attention on her. But several months after the arrest, she allowed Paul Holtz to identify her publicly. I don't know if you recall this, but Paul Holtz named her in a tweet back in August 2018 thanking her for her structure and expertise in the case. I don't remember that. She also says she felt safe coming forward because other women have been public about their work, such as, who's a famous genetic genealogist we always hear from? Cece Moore. Cece Moore. She's also a genetic genealogist known for her work starting on adoption cases just like Barbara. But she also had recently announced breakthroughs in six murder cases and two sexual assault cases. Right. And then there was yet another woman who, all these women are just amazing, Colleen Fitzpatrick. She was a rocket scientist turned genetic genealogist. 
and she came out publicly regarding her work on a dozen murder cases. And she now has an organization, which we'll talk about later. Look at women paving the way Amazing. in this field. And Fitzpatrick was quoted as saying that the Golden State Killers case really opened the door to say that we can now go into homicides in genetic genealogy because it was a little unclear. After her role in the Golden State Killer case, she became well-known and she was approached to assist in at least 50 unsolved cases, including homicides and unidentified victims. Wow. So in a moment, we're going to talk about where she is now, but I just want to highlight some other noteworthy cases that she helped solve because one is more shocking than the next. Oh, okay. In Port Washington, Wisconsin, she helped police solve the 35-year-old cold case of a murder of an 18-year-old, Tracy Hammerberg, who was sexually assaulted and murdered by a former classmate. Another case out of Wisconsin, the identification of Peggy Lynn Johnson. She was a Jane Doe for over 20 years, and it helped police identify the suspected killer. And not only the victim's identity, but But the the killer's killer's identity as well. Oh, my goodness. And then in California, a longtime neighbor and grandfather was arrested as the suspect in two rape cases from the late 1990s. And she used, again, investigative genetic genealogy to help the police department identify him. And just last month, she was instrumental in solving a 32-year-old cold case. There was a newborn baby that was found in a bag in the Bay Area, and the baby was never identified. Guess who... um, It was revealed is responsible. After 32 years, his mother was charged with the murder. It turns out that she had hid the pregnancy from family and friends and then killed the baby and dumped him in the bay. So it's really unfortunate. And then the last one I just want to highlight is, have you ever heard of the case, The Boy in the Box? I mean, it sounds familiar. (sighs) It's very interesting because it dates back to 1957. So there was an unknown murder victim, a four to six-year-old boy whose naked, battered body was found in a bassinet box in the Fox Chase section of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was also commonly referred to as America's unknown child. His identity had never been discovered and the case remains open, but probably not for long now that Barbara is working on it. Wow, I'm I sure. can keep going. I have lists and lists of cases, but for the sake of time, I'll stop with the highlighting of cases there and just turn to the controversy with... I feel yes. like, sorry, I yes. feel like this reminds me of when we did cover Kathleen Zellner. I was like, let me go through every case. These are women that are, I mean, they're rock stars. I'm so, so glad. So inspiring. I think, I'm really glad yeah. we're featuring them in these yeah. episodes. Okay, so you were going to stop yes. there and go to the controversy. Yes. Although these methods help solve crimes, it's not without controversy. These cases have highlighted how DNA samples that have been volunteered for one purpose, in this case, genealogy, can be used for other reasons without the donor's explicit consent. There have been several ethical concerns brought up. Oh, sorry. I know you're going to go into no, it, but isn't number one the invasion of privacy, Fourth Amendment issues, or no? It is, but there's workarounds, which in the case of the Golden State Killer, for example, D'Angelo's relatives submitted their DNA for the specific purpose of genealogy, which by definition requires the information to be shared and compared. However, it was used for something else without their consent. Right. So they found that they've ended up solving this case because a distant relative of D'Angelo updated their DNA, hoping to find the family tree. I, I completely understand that. But then does, don't they have an expectation of privacy is, yes. the, is the issue here? That is the actual, that is the issue. That's why law enforcement goes to genealogists because law enforcement cannot do this themselves. Although there have been cases where law enforcement has been accused of creating fake profiles and uploading cold case DNA. So GEDmatch is what we talked about before, and GEDmatch is the site that collects data from all the other sites. They have since changed their policy because they face a lot of backlash. Mm. So now they require people to opt in to share their DNA with law enforcement. If you go on their website, it's a big banner. 
but their total number of samples dropped from over a million before D'Angelo to about 250,000 today. Right. So for the most part, each site really has their own user agreement, Mm -hmm. and many allow people to opt out of DNA sharing for law enforcement purposes. But you have to actually read the fine print a lot of times. Yeah. But you'll see they're being responsible. And instead of making in the fine print, like I said, sites like Family Tree DNA, they offer law enforcement services. So that could increase the pool of potential matches. But others like MyHeritage, 23andMe, Mm -hmm. and Ancestry, they do not allow law enforcement access. So some people feel that law enforcement navigating GEDmatch is an exploitation of a loophole that violates trust. Others feel like it's okay because it's solving these heinous crimes. The fact is actually, because of these databases, some estimates say that over 250 violent crimes have been solved just since the Golden State Killer. Yeah, and the question is, do you want to give up some of your rights for the greater good mm. or not? You know what I mean? This the is slippery like, slope, though. This is a hard one for me. I do. Are we going to get to our opinions about this? Or yeah, we, we will. I'm almost done. I'm sorry, Megan. Hang in there. No, I am. I'm here. I'm excited. Aww, you're always there, Megan. Always. Thank you. Always. So what does the Department of Justice say about this? Ooh, that's the authority. Yep. In 2019, they issued guidelines for federal investigations. We know that there's a difference between state and federal. The DOJ says that you could only use genetic genealogy to track down suspects in serious violent crimes. And or, though, because it's confusing, there have been different ways to interpret this. It could also be used as a last resort. I that's so I hate when they give vague language. I know. I know. Because, it, you know, like I said, it's such a slippery slope if it's not specified. Serious violent crime. So we're we talking just murder and rape. Some people would they, say uh, they probably know. have a category. If they say serious violent, I bet they're going to have yeah. a schedule of offenses yeah. that they consider there. And it's going to be like your top, you know, the the FBI's top yep. eight, you know, including homicide, like robbery, index crimes, index yeah. crimes rape, you know, the, the eight most serious. So now we're seeing states also developing some language about what can be done with these sites. So a couple of months ago, there was a warrant by a Florida law enforcement agency demanding access to all DNA profiles even those who did not opt in. Well, they probably and, couldn't, yeah. And they complied. What? Yep. We're going to see a lot of movement on the state level because this is so new and it brings up so many issues. We're going to see people starting to press for laws to protect the privacy rights of all people and limit access to everyone's genetic material. Mm-hmm. However, the other side of this is not only are we able to to find unknown offenders, we're able to solve the cases of Jane Doe's And this is also helping in the wrongful conviction area as well, because if someone else is implicated and you're in prison for that crime, then that's going to help you too. So this has far reaching benefits. There's some talk about having genetic genealogy is leading to more white offenders being apprehended. Is it because um, black ones were falsely accused and now the genealogy reveals the truth? That's an interesting theory that could be. But before this, everyone was using CODIS. So CODIS is this federal system where they have the DNA of people that have been arrested or charged of crimes. And because that's predominantly minority black males, right? So if you found, so for example, the Golden State Killer's DNA never matched CODIS. Right. So they're saying that... If you look at who's using these sites, I would bet you would find that it's people that are, you know, middle class. You have to afford to have a computer, afford to have the privilege to poke around on the Internet looking for relatives. So because of this, you're having more white people submitting their DNA. Right. And so that's how we got someone like the Golden State Killer. And also Terry Rasmussen was a white man also. So interesting. I wonder if it'll change anything. Let's do research on it. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's a good idea. Well, that's a really good idea. 
I, what I'm thinking is I'm wondering if that will change what we know about uh, the crime rates and how we attribute yes. them. You know, when we talk about crime statistics and crime distribution, will this actually change so what we know? But there's all other issues with CODIS that of we course. could talk about. Of course. It's important to note that genetic genealogy is not enough to convict a person. It's just one piece of the puzzle. But aren't juries going to equate this with DNA, with gold standard? With their, I mean, this is going to be a powerful piece of evidence. A lot of these cases, we find that people plead guilty, such as the Golden State Killer. However, there was a case that C.C. Moore worked on. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you recall, there were two victims that got killed in Washington. They were Canadian citizens, like 18-year-old and their, their killer was unknown. They found the killer and the case went to trial. And this was the first time they used genetic genealogy to actually get a conviction. So she did not end up testifying. However, the jury was presented the information of genetic genealogy. And this all happened because C.C. Moore helped them figure out the profile. Okay. They were following the guy that fit from the profile. He threw out a cup. They used the right. cup to match him. So it's like the fruit of the poisonous tree. Do you remember that? Yeah, Learning of that course. In, uh, if you obtain if you obtain evidence in violation of constitutional rights, it's tainted and it can't be used. And it doesn't matter what it leads to. It could lead to 100 bodies. It can't be used. But as C.C. Moore was saying, this shows that it holds up in the court of law and a jury was able to convict. I think Barbara Ray and C.C. Moore and a couple of these other females are amazing. And I hope that they'll inspire, you know, uh, future females to go into this field as well. Here are, here's my thought on the genetic genealogy. And I struggle with a lot of these issues when we are talking about law enforcement, the powers of law enforcement, how far should they be allowed to go? When is it an invasion into our Fourth Amendment rights and other constitutional rights? I think my feeling is, is this is such a powerful tool that can help to solve such substantial crimes that it has to be used. But I think what they need is um, I think there should be strong oversight and limitations in a way that are able to still preserve, you know, our rights. So I think it should be used, but it has to be much. I think it's going to have to be very highly regulated. And I do think that there should be a special consideration given to how to not um, trample on our rights to privacy. I think we're going to see a lot of movement in the courts on this issue, both at the state level and the federal level. You know what it reminds me of after 9-11? All the questions between what, you know, liberty and safety, getting stopped and searched in the subway. People were complaining that it violated their right to privacy, but it was for the greater good because of what was going on. Right. Uh, You're right. I mean, when when I teach about the Patriot Act, it was a total loosening of Fourth and Fifth Amendment rights, Mm -hmm. and it happened very quickly. Again, I would like to see, as I teach in policy, I'd love to see long-term real planning for this. If this is going to be a valuable tool, great. Let's figure out the benefit of it, the, the consequences of it, and then let's design a policy that actually works in, you know, balancing these two concerns. That's why this episode just branches off. Yeah, no, it's great. No pun intended. Get it, family? Tree. Yeah, get it. Okay, where is Barbara today? I was going to ask that. <laughs> so today she is the director of Gene by Gene's Investigative Genetic Genealogy. She also consults on several cases. I read somewhere 50, and then I read somewhere that she has almost 60 active cases. She also provides commentary on the ethics of using shared community data for law, law enforcement purposes and addresses ethical questions about the use of shared genetic data. The only other thing I want to add is I want to plug the DNA Doe Project. Have you heard of the DNA Doe Project? I have, but go ahead. Okay, so the DNA Doe Project, it was established in 2017, going back to Fitzgerald that we talked about before. This was started by two genealogist researchers who worked to identify unknown victims using GEDmatch. It's volunteers that construct these family trees based on DNA. 
So instead of having those search angels who are helping you find your adoptive parents, they have a group of people that are working to identify all of these unknown victims from over the years. Amy, amazing episode. Thank you so much. Thank you. I think I want to go into genetic genealogy. Oh, I'm going with you. Imagine we found out we were like cousins or something. I think we clearly are. (laughs) Anyway, thank you so much to all of our listeners today. Yes. Thanks, Megan. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Our music is composed by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode comes from the New York Times, genealogyconsult.com, Barbara's website, Oxygen, ABC News. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.